0: Today means a lot to me for many reasons. It is a day to remember and to pay respect to those who have tragically passed, some of whose family, friends and partners are with us today in this room. It is a day to reflect on where we have been, where we are now and where we need to focus in order to move forward.
1: There are few opportunities for HIV-positive people to come together to reflect and to celebrate the achievements gained over the last 35-year history of this epidemic. Sadly, there are even fewer opportunities for the broader community to hear our stories or to stand alongside us and support us. One of those rare moments each year is December 1, World AIDS Day. Hi, I'm Dean Beck, and in this episode of Inside HIV, we hear what unfolded in Victoria for the 2016 launch of this International Day of Acknowledgement.
2: Welcome to Inside HIV, the podcast for positive people. Made possible thanks to the Victorian AIDS Council, VAC, Working Together, and Vive Healthcare, Positive Action Community Grants. Follow on Twitter at HIV
3: Podcast and like us on Facebook.
1: The theme for the day was HIV is still here and it's on the move. Victoria's Health Minister, the Honourable Jill Hennessy, officially launched the proceedings, acknowledging the dignitaries present, the lives who have passed and the battles we have lost and won. Minister Hennessy also recognised those who were about to tell their stories on the day.
3: The wonderful giant of biomedical research. Associate Professor Edwina Wright, who I know is here with us today. Uh, She is not wearing her signature red lipstick. I put mine on this morning in (laughs) open anticipation. It's a lovely burnished orange, but it's perhaps not red enough. Can I also acknowledge two fantastic people that I've had the chance to meet this morning and that I'm sure are going to knock your socks off um, later on, but Heather and Gareth from the Positive Speakers Bureau... Um, And what a gift it is for people to come and share their personal story. So can I acknowledge um, their generosity and express my appreciation to them personally for what it is that they're going to do for all of us today.
1: Victoria's Health Minister, Jill Hennessy speaking at the launch of World AIDS Day 2016. The keynote address for 2016, was delivered by one of Australia's most admired HIV research clinicians. Here is Living Positive Victoria's President Richard Keane, introducing Associate Professor Edwina Wright.
2: She is an infectious diseases physician and clinical researcher at the Alfred Hospital, Monash University and the Burnett Institute. Her distinguished career spans the entire HIV and AIDS epidemic with a strong interest in HIV-associated neurological disorders. Edwina's work in this area has included studies that address the pathogens of HIV and the brain and the benefits of different strategies to treat HIV brain infections. In 2014, as Ashen president, she led a community submission to the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee Now all Australian residents can access HIV treatment no matter what their CD4 cell count is. She was a young registrar at Fairfield Hospital at a time when there were multiple deaths from AIDS. The model of care developed at Fairfield between health professionals and patients continues to this day. Her practice went from palliative care to now when HIV is regarded as a chronic but manageable health condition. A fearless advocate for challenging HIV stigma, and more recently, head researcher for the Victorian VicPrep and the prep trials, which have seen over 2,500 people commence PrEP in Victoria. It makes me really proud to invite her to speak.
3: Sometime today, around six million Victorians will wake up and ultimately get up. Some will wake up alone. Some will wake up with a hangover, and if they're unlucky, they will wake up with both the hangover and children. <laughs> <laughs> Others will wake up with their makeup still on and still wearing yesterday's clothes, and here I'm referring to both men and women, of course. Quite a few people will wake up homeless. And if they're not homeless, then a big motivation for them to get up will be to get to work to pay for their rent or mortgage because Melbourne has some of the highest rental and mortgage repayment rates in the world. A large number of people in Victoria wake up every day with a chronic illness and today is not going to be any different. As an example, about 300,000 Victorians have type 2 diabetes and I imagine that when they're finally awake this morning... They'll be thinking about planning their meals for the day, uh, testing their blood sugar, and some of them will need to remember to take their medications. Another group of people will be waking up, and most of them will, at some point in the day, intersect with their tablets to treat a different chronic illness. And here, of course, I'm referring to um, the many thousands of Victorians who will wake up today as people living with HIV. Also, as has been mentioned, several hundred people will in fact wake up not knowing that they are HIV positive. And I actually want to acknowledge the undiagnosed HIV people in Victoria as the first people to acknowledge and hope that when they, come, when they move forward in, in and through their diagnosis that they can be the fortunate recipients of so much care and wisdom, compassion and at times love that is present from the people in this room. Last year in Victoria, around 290 people found out that they were HIV positive 258 were men, 31 were women, and there was one transgender person. A small proportion were Aboriginal Victorians. About 20% of the newly diagnosed were heterosexuals, and about 2% acquired HIV principally, we think, through injecting drug use. As has been mentioned, about a quarter of newly diagnosed people were already advanced in their, in their HIV illness. Their CD4 cells were under 350. And that likelihood was much higher if you came come from Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, and in turn if you come from those uh, regions and you're heterosexual. So HIV has not gone away in this state and nor has AIDS. Last year, 39 people were diagnosed with AIDS in Victoria. And for the record, something else hasn't gone away in this state. And here I'm referring to the many hundreds if not perhaps a few thousand HIV-positive people alive today who have survived previous AIDS illnesses. These are the Victorian HIV Elders, and I'm sure that several Elders, I know that several Elders are here today, and I would like to acknowledge them at this point in (laughs) the I would also like to acknowledge all the people whom we are now without, people who suffered and died from AIDS and other HIV-related diseases since HIV first arrived in the southern Antipodes right down here in Victoria. One reason why it's so important to acknowledge those who have experienced AIDS illnesses, including those who continue to do so, is that AIDS illnesses are quite sinister by nature and cause a lot of physical suffering. They're difficult to treat, they're prone to relapse without preventive therapy, without antiretroviral therapy. They have high morbidity and mortality rates. But another reason to acknowledge people who have had AIDS illnesses, and I reflected on this recently when I was fortunate enough to give the Keith Harper um, address at the VAC AGM, is that because because we didn't know much about the virus for a very long time, it was destined that the focus of the HIV epidemic, at least initially, would be upon what humans do to acquire HIV rather than what the virus does to humans. This is still the case in many settings. The focus is on the nature of people and their behaviour and not on the nature of the virus and its behaviour. Therefore, AIDS illnesses have become the stigmata of people whose behaviour, lifestyle choices or socioeconomic circumstances are unacceptable to wider societies and religions and governments. AIDS illnesses have served and, and I think still serve as symbolic punishments for being other. And so people suffer doubly from AIDS through the experience of the physical illness itself and through the infliction of societal shaming. If you'd woken up as an HIV-positive person in 1986 instead of 2016, you would probably not have been getting up to go to work, at least not with any ease. Maybe you were just out of hospital with PCP, You might have been trying to find the energy and the courage to tell your family about your diagnosis or you might have still been in denial about your HIV. The tablets you would be taking would have been antifungals and antibiotics, anti-nausea agents, some acyclovir for genital herpes. You would not have been taking antiretroviral agents. You would have had to wait till July 1996 when the AIDS conference in Vancouver heralded the wonderful findings that using three antiretroviral drugs reduced AIDS, death and hospitalisation rates. This was the beginning of the highly active antiretroviral era, the heart era, as many of you of course know. During the 1980s and until the mid-1990s, most HIV-positive Victorians were cared for at Fairfield Hospital, the state's fever hospital north of the city, it opened in 1904 and was a refuge for the sick and the undesirable, hence it was the natural destination for people living with AIDS and HIV. Fairfield Hospital closed in 1996 and the Victorian HIV AIDS Service moved here to the Alfred Hospital and Fairfield Hospital's wonderful culture of care that evolved from fantastic clinicians and researchers like Jenny Hoy, Suzanne Crow, Anne Mitch, Ron Lucas and the scientists at McFarland Burnett and Vigil. That culture of care travelled down Punt Road, arrived here intact, and has remained here since. Despite the heady success of heart regimens being able to restore health, it was not until the 2000s that we had better tolerated antiretrovirals. Prior to that, heart treatments, combined with the effects of HIV itself, were associated with conditions including peripheral neuropathy, lipodystrophy, osteoporosis, frailty, cardiovascular disease... And many people still live today with HIV and several of these aforementioned comorbidities and all the attendant medications that they must take with them. And today is a really important opportunity to acknowledge these incredibly resilient people living with long-term HIV and non-AIDS comorbidities, often doing so supported only by a disability support pension. Fortunately, we've seen the gradual refinement of antiretroviral therapy, such that in 2016... It's recommended that individuals newly diagnosed with HIV commence treatment immediately. There is very strong scientific evidence to underpin this recommendation. Treatment may take the form of a single daily pill with a very low toxicity profile, but a very high potency profile. And here I'm going to draw again upon my recent address at Vax AGM <coughs> thinking around pills and say that pills can do a lot of things. It's possible to be cured by a pill but not to be healed by it. And this is a somewhat contentious thing to say because although a cure for HIV is very likely to come, it may not arrive during some of our lifetimes, in which case some people may feel that they lost out, that they missed out on the cure. But until a cure comes, I think it's worthwhile reflecting what difference would a cure make to me as an HIV-positive person or as a person affected by HIV. The reason I mention this is because a cure may not lead to a person being healed. They may still suffer physically, psychologically or emotionally from the effects of their HIV journey. So I think that it would be a mistake to rely on a cure in whatever form it takes to fully heal us. And I think we can begin that healing work now before a cure or a remission arrives. To end this address, I would like to say that when we wake up on these cool summer days, it's it's possible to turn our thoughts to the many thousands of people who are taking HIV antiretroviral therapy in this state, thus ensuring their own health and the health of others, as you've heard, through treatment as prevention, where they're essentially non-infectious. We can think in our mornings, if we like, We can think upon how the 2,500 Victorians are feeling this morning as they wake up to take their daily HIV PrEP tablet to give them additional protection against HIV. We can warm to the thought that perhaps the early signals are true, that HIV positive MSM are feeling less stigmatised by HIV negative MSM because the latter are using PrEP and understanding more about how treatment as prevention works essentially, these are the things that in the 1980s and early 1990s, only few of us would have had the time or energy to consider even possible. Personally, I don't think it's worth getting up every day, especially when the Minister of Health spots, you're not wearing truly red lipstick, (laughs) 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 discloses that to the audience. Um, But today is World AIDS Day, and I'm very proud to be here to honour people living with HIV-AIDS, past and present, to honour the people who love them, to honour the researchers, scientists, health professionals, activists, peak organisations, media commentators, health bureaucrats, lawyers and politicians who have worked hard to craft such an incredible arc of progress in the treatment, prevention and without doubt one day cure for this sorrow-making infectious disease. Thank you for your time.
2: I'd now like to invite the first of our Positive Speakers Bureau speakers. This is Gareth Graham. Originally from Queenstown in New Zealand, Gareth has called Melbourne home for the last 12 years. He works as a business development manager for a private hospital in Melbourne's West. His focus in speaking at the World AIDS Day launch is to share his story and raise more awareness of HIV and reduce the stigma that still surrounds it. Gareth believes that by being open and honest about his experience, he hopes to encourage other people to be more comfortable, to discuss HIV and to ask questions. The more informed the community is, the more we can do to reduce new transmission and support those living with and affected by HIV across genders and sexualities.
0: On December 1st, 2014, I walked out of the Melbourne Sexual Health Clinic in tears. I had a brown paper bag in my hand which contained my first month's worth of my new, lifelong HIV medication. I was devastated. I don't remember much else about that day except making myself a very healthy dinner and getting ready to take my first pill. There were a lot of things running through my head. You will have to take this every day, forever. What will the side effects be? Will it work? And Gareth, really? What have you done? A condom has never looked so good. The moment that that pill passed my lips, the sense of relief that I felt was incredible. So here I am, two years later, speaking to you all. Today means a lot to me for many reasons. For me it is two years to the day that I took control of my life and my health back, after three months of feeling sick, scared, vulnerable and hopeless. It is a day to remember and to pay respect to those who have tragically passed, some of whose family, friends and partners are with us today in this room. It is a day to reflect on where we have been, where we are now and where we need to focus in order to move forward. When writing this speech I had trouble articulating in my mind why my story would be interesting for you all. I don't really feel like it's anything remarkable. I'm standing here because HIV is still here, and I believe that sharing our stories is important. It raises awareness and hopefully breaks down the fear that is still embedded in people that we have of this virus. I'm doing this speech because I can, unlike many that we have lost, and I'm doing it for the people who are gripped by their own fear due to lack of knowledge and the stigma, whether that be internal or external, that still surrounds HIV in 2016. So where did this all start for me? I woke up on the day of my brother's wedding, soaked in sweat. I had the worst aches and pains I've ever experienced. I remember putting in my contact lenses that day and even touching my eyelashes hurt. I had a fairly good idea that it wasn't just a cold or the flu, but I took a handful of cold and flu tablets, you never know, had a (laughs) glass of champagne and got on with the day. It was a beautiful wedding, but I can tell you a very long day to be in my head with my own thoughts. The next three days in New Zealand were spent in bed... Hot, cold, freaking out. On arrival back to Melbourne, I headed straight to my GP for my tests. By this stage, I was feeling a lot worse, and now also had a terrible-looking rash down the side of my face. I got tested for everything, and after the always awful syphilis injections, I was sent home to rest and to wait. The diagnosis of HIV came as no shock after a week of feeling this way. This was all made a lot worse by the fact that I'd had way too much time on my hands to play Dr. Google. The next few months are a complete blur. Lucky for me, my GP was amazing. I was completely overwhelmed, so he staggered the information for me. Every visit was another step forward in my understanding of the virus. Despite having been an openly gay man since the age of 17, and knowing many people affected by HIV, I was shocked to learn that I actually really didn't know much about it at all. We never really talked about it. I never asked my friends with HIV many questions. I didn't want to be rude, and I didn't want to make them feel like possibly I had an issue with it. In the case of how it was transmitted to me, I didn't ask my sexual partner many questions either. I didn't want to make him uncomfortable, but to be honest, I didn't know that there were really that many questions to ask. When I had a conversation with my GP about it without bursting into tears, we decided it was time for me to start treatment. We're very fortunate here in Australia to have many options available to us, so we gave me time to think about it. I chose a daily tablet, simply that I take with dinner. I was also in a new relationship at the time, so simultaneously I was falling in love. There was a lot of emotions, good and bad, going on all at the same time, and to be honest, it was completely overwhelming. Not surprisingly, that relationship ended shortly after, which at the time felt cruel. But in hindsight, I'm so glad. I had to go and figure this out for myself. Sitting in my apartment now with my cat, I had to now face what I was really afraid of now, being alone. I had to also look at myself in the mirror and start the process of forgiving myself for getting into this situation. One thing that many people with HIV can be fearful of is the things that other people might think or say. No one could say anything to me now or at the time that was harsher than my inner dialogue. I was so angry at myself. So I reached out to my family and friends, and they were incredible. I've always known that I'm loved, but this is the time in my life when I've really felt it. In the first months after I was diagnosed, I do remember feeling like I could feel the HIV in my blood. I felt like, with the slightest move, I could pass it on. After three months of treatment, I became what we call undetectable. There are still many people that can't reach this target, and I'm one of the lucky ones. Protecting my health with HIV treatment also significantly reduces the chances of me passing the virus on, and I can tell you this is a very good feeling. Soon after, I enrolled in a weekend workshop for newly diagnosed gay men with HIV. It's called Phoenix, and it's run by the wonderful people at Living Positive Victoria. Being in a room with the people in the same boat... Was a really great experience. We came from different backgrounds, worked in different industries, and lived on different sides of the river. (laughs) But the fears that we all shared were all the same. Fears of being alone, rejected, discriminated against, passing the virus on, or getting sick. Hearing their stories made me very emotional, and I spent the first evening unsuccessfully holding back tears. I made some new friends, and we all walked out into the world on Sunday standing a little bit taller, feeling empowered informed and most of all feeling connected. What Living Positive Victoria do in providing peer support is so important and it's the best thing I could have done. It was now time for me to start negotiating dating, sex and new partners. At first, negotiating sex and working out when to tell a new potential partner was, to be honest, quite scary. I felt like I'd taken the fun right out of the whole thing. I was pleasantly surprised, however. Most people were quite well educated or at least willing to learn more. Those that weren't comfortable Either didn't call me back, to be honest that could have been a bad bad joke that I've made, I'll never know, or they thank me for being honest and upfront. People are becoming more aware of new options available, such as PrEP and the understanding of what undetectable means. This is due to the tireless work that many people in this room do and continue to do. It's because of your efforts that people like myself are able to navigate a new diagnosis, feeling supported and feeling informed. There is, however, still work to do. Just by having open conversations and taking care of myself, hopefully I'm doing my bit. I can honestly say that I'm the healthiest and the happiest that I've ever been. If someone told me this would be the case on December 1st, 2014, I could never have believed them. Strangely enough, this experience has forced me to stand up in my life, and finally at 34, love myself, flaws and all. I challenge you all over the next few days, and weeks, to have a conversation outside of the space about HIV. The person that you're speaking to could be struggling with a new diagnosis and too scared to say, or they could be trying to help a loved one who's just had the news and don't know how they can help. The more that we talk about this, the sooner that the fear and the judgement that goes along with it will slowly start to disappear. And then what are we left with? We're left with a completely manageable virus, but one that is still here and can affect anyone. Thank you.
2: Heather has lived with HIV for 21 years. She was diagnosed in 1995, at a time when death from AIDS was inevitable. But a year later, effective HIV medications were discovered and she went on to work as a journalist for News Limited in communications for an NGO, got married, had three gorgeous children and all were born free of HIV. Yet with the stigma that still surrounds HIV, which has never had a legitimate reason to exist, Heather decided to become a professional speaker with the Living Positive Victoria Speakers Bureau and has given numerous talks on sexual health and HIV to (coughs) high school students, medical students and the corporate sector since 2007. Her story contributes to breaking down stigma and act as an unforgettable reminder that HIV is still here and it's on the move. Heather is also the author of Ubuntu, One Woman's Motorcycle Odyssey Across Africa, published by Black Incorporated uh, to rave reviews in April this year and she still rides her motorbike. I'd like you to welcome Heather.
4: Thank you. It's a great privilege to to be here today. As you just heard from Richard, I'm not only part of one elite group, but two. And actually, I'm also part of three, because today I've found out that I'm an AIDS elder. (laughs) So as well as living with HIV for 21 years, I'm also a published author. And while Ubuntu uh, is not about HIV... I do reveal this twist at the end of my extraordinary motorcycle journey across Africa, which I did against all odds 23 years ago. And I'm not going to bang on about my book, but um, <laughs> it's all part of my talk here today. So I'm sure your, your minds are all abuzz with many questions. And the first one that everyone thinks they might not ask, but they think, is how did I get it? Uh, why, and then why did I do such a journey? What does the Buntu mean? And why did it take me so long to write my book? And I'll get to that in a moment. Ubuntu is a Bantu word from South Africa, which means I am because we are. It is the universal bond that connects us all as one. And this is what was shown to me by the African people. The idea to travel Africa was one of those lightbulb moments that I can only describe as a calling. A call to explore, to seek adventure, and also to seek meaning. It is a calling that is innately human. But I didn't pack condoms for my trip because I had no intention of having sex. I ignored that sex is also innately human. I was a smart young woman. Before my travels, I was employed as a radiation safety technician in the Northern Territory at the Uranium Mine. And I knew Africa was the epicentre of the HIV pandemic in the early 1990s while I was planning my journey. Yet still, I had that one unguarded moment. And I'm sure I am not the only person to travel overseas who has had unprotected sex, and certainly will not be the last. I wonder just how many of those newly diagnosed in Australia also had an unguarded moment while on a trip of a lifetime. And what about the growing number of people who are diagnosed when HIV has already destroyed much of their immune system? And what about those whose diagnosis comes too late? And even with the advanced HIV treatments we have today, they still die from AIDS. And what about all those yet to be diagnosed? We live in a global world, and HIV is a global disease. People, especially young people, travel and people, especially young people, have sex. And they don't all use condoms. As 86,000 young people who were diagnosed with chlamydia in Australia last year show. Is it any wonder HIV is still here? And is it any wonder it's on the move? I too could have been one of the growing number diagnosed late with HIV, but I was one of the lucky ones in that I had a HIV test while I was still healthy and living and working in London. I was preparing for the second leg of my world motorcycle journey, and the test was a requirement of a three-month visa for Russia. I was diagnosed in September 1995, when death from AIDS was inevitable, and just ten months before the first of the new generation of HIV treatments became available. I was told I had five years, but there was no mention of the hope that was on the horizon. So what does one do when faced with their mortality and given no hope? They pack their motorcycle, of course, (laughs) and go on one last adventure, one last search for meaning, which also became a search for salvation. But as I travelled east into Central Asia and down through China, I became sicker and weaker. When I reached Vietnam nearly a year later, I knew I needed urgent medical treatment. I took the first flight to Australia to arrive unexpectedly on my parents' doorstep. I had not told them I had HIV. Instead, I explained my ill health, saying I'd picked up a particularly bad stomach bug in China. I lived with a dark secret because I was so full of fear about rejection and shame. My silence nearly killed me because I did not reach out for help until my darkest hour help that told me about the recent discovery of effective HIV medications that would save me from death. Under the pretense I was moving to Cairns to begin the the next chapter of my young life, I'd secretly phoned the Queensland AIDS Council, a support group for people living with HIV. And a day later I was in hospital with the nurses insisting I tell my parents and the doctors asking if I wanted to see the chaplain. I'll get over this, I replied. So effective were these new HIV treatments that ten days later, on Christmas Eve, I was out of hospital and home with my parents, who were none the wiser that I'd had a brief glimpse of what waits for us on the other side. With my health restored, two months later, I went to university and studied journalism, and after graduating in 2000, worked for News Limited. Outwardly, I was in good health, and was on the path to a successful career. But I still carried a dark secret, the stigma of HIV. It stopped me from having close relationships, so I arranged my own marriage with an HIV-positive man I met online. We moved to Melbourne, where I worked for an international NGO. With the advances in HIV medications, my husband and I were reassured by the staff at the Alfred Hospital's HIV clinic some of whom are in the audience today, that it was safe to start a family, and we had three boys free of HIV. Unfortunately, the marriage did not last. But while I was a happy, healthy single mother who still rides motorcycles, stigma hung like a dark cloud over my life. My fear of anyone finding out was now for my children. I wanted them to have a normal childhood to be invited to birthday parties and playdates, and not to be rejected because of me. So insidious is HIV stigma that it also affects by association. When I was diagnosed with HIV in 1995, I faced certain death. I wrote my book Ubuntu as I did not want that extraordinary journey to die with me. But when I didn't die, I shelved the manuscript because part of that story is also HIV. In 2016, I told my story and Blacking published it. I'm proud of my book, and many people are proud of me for saying enough is enough to stigma. But that does not mean that I have been embraced by all. I received a call from a school mum advising my children were no longer welcome at her house. But it wasn't because of that, she said. A statewide corporation, keen for me to do an author talk cancelled after I'd given them a copy of my book, as did a national motorcycle group. So nothing has really changed with those diagnosed with HIV in 2016. They join many of the 37 million people living with HIV in the world today who continue to live in fear of shame, rejection and isolation from family, friends and community. This is not Ubuntu. This is not the universal bond that connects us all. 2016 is the year I gave my voice completely to raise awareness about HIV and to educate others to take responsibility for their sexual health. As a speaker with the Positive Speakers Bureau, I now speak to all schools and not just those outside a 20-kilometre exclusion zone of Hillsville, where I live. (laughs) I've spoken proudly about living with HIV to the media, even to my local paper. 2016 is the year I stood up to stigma, stood up to the shame society places on us. I stood up to the silence because so many young people, the middle-aged and older Australians too, have forgotten about HIV. This is why HIV is still here, and this is why it's on the move.
1: Heather Ellis, telling her story of living with HIV for over two decades at the 2016 World AIDS Day Community Launch. There's a link to Heather's website where you can find out more about her book, Ubuntu, at insidehiv.net. Inside HIV, the podcast for positive people. Made possible thanks to the Victorian AIDS Council, (VAC) Working Together, and Vive Healthcare Positive Action Community Grants. Follow us on Twitter, at HIV Podcast and like us on Facebook. Visit InsideHIV.net or download from iTunes. In the next episode of Inside HIV, Chemsex 2.0. I talk to Dave Stewart from London's Chemsex Clinic, and local activist Nick Hollis about the role of community in the chemsex debate. And then there's this shock revelation from John. Uh, I met up with a guy online, told me he was on PrEP, won the bed back, told him my status, hooked up. We had sex. After blowing him when I pulled out he was bleeding and then he turns around and told me he wasn't on prep and starting to get a bit aggressive towards me that's pretty fucked up
2: it was